This study came at a very good time for me, personally. At this point in the semester, things are getting piled up and all the due dates are coming on the same week and you think, all right, I just need to get through this week and then everything's gonna be all right. If I can just get everything due, everything done that's due this week, next week will be a breeze. And you get everything done and then you look at the syllabus for next week and it's like, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> and you do the same thing over. You get everything done for that week and you're like, all right, yes. This week's done next week, and it's the same thing again. And so, <laughs> which is why some of my papers have been coming in late. I apologize. <laughs> but going through the motions is something that is easy to fall into. And that monotonous, lackadaisical, lethargic, just doing things that you need to do simply to do them is something that's very easy to fall into and something that oftentimes we don't even know that we're in until we're deep into it. And there's two times in life, in my life, which I've noticed that this happens. The first time is when everything's going really, really well. My life is going the way I want it to go. Nothing's causing any problems. Everything's in order. My ducks are in a row. And I feel really close to God. And then I start letting my, my feelings and my emotions and my beliefs be dictated by what I'm experiencing, by what I feel. I'm allowing my, my emotions to determine what I believe to be true about who God is and how I should be acting as his son. How my relationship with him looks, what I believe to be true about that is being dictated by what I'm feeling and what I'm, what I'm experiencing. And Satan is good at what he does. And so he uses times like that to lull us to sleep. And one of, the, one of the easiest ways to do that is to make our life easy. When we're, when we're going through a period of time in our life when everything's going right, it's easy to drift away from God while still feeling like we're close to him. And the second time that I start to experience this, of this going through the motions, this lazy Christian life, is when I get really busy, like the end of a semester. And Life is full of stuff, not necessarily bad stuff, but just full of stuff. And those, that stuff could be assignments, classes, work, church, ministry, none of which is sinful in and of itself. But when all of that stuff pushes God to the back burner, that's when things become a problem. And what I've noticed in my life is I'm living that exact definition of what Christ calls a whitewashed tomb. Everything looks good on the outside, but on the inside I'm lifeless. Everything looks to be in order, but on the inside there's nothing going on. And I'm covering up sin with a veneer of worship. I'm a, I'm a carpenter, I do construction, and we work with veneer plywood a lot. And it's nice for us that we can just go to the store and buy it. We don't have to make it because the process of making a piece of veneer plywood is a pretty extensive process. And it starts with finding a tree that is suitable to be used for veneer. It's a veneer grade tree. It has to be a certain diameter. It can't be too small. It can't be too big. It has to be a specific diameter. It can't have any branches for eight to 10 feet so that they have a trunk to work with without any knots. And so usually these trees are farmed. They're not, they're not typically just found and harvested. They usually are farmed and pruned and, 
and prepared for the veneer product. Once they find, once they get a tree that's ready to be used as a veneer tree, they cut it down, they cut the crown off, they cut the bottom of the, the trunk off, so you're left with a, usually a 10 foot, eight foot log. And they shave all the bark off, and then they cook it. They, it goes through a cooking process where they steam it, and it has to be a specific temperature and a specific humidity. And if, if they get it too hot, it's too brittle. They can't, they can't use it. If they don't get it hot enough, it doesn't shave right. And so it has to be a specific temperature and a specific humidity. So once they achieve that, once they get it exactly how they want it, then they take it out and put it on a big lathe, and there's a giant razor blade that, it, that they use to shave off really thin layers of wood, about a 32nd of an inch thick, really, really thin layers. And they shave it until the, the log is gone. So you have these sheets just rolling off this lathe. And then they use those thin sheets of hardwood to cover up the rest of the cruddy wood that they use to make the plywood. They grind up a bunch of wood, glue it together, and then they cover all that with this piece of veneer that looks really nice. And they use it when they make cabinets. A good carpenter will be able to use veneer plywood and make hardwood cabinets that, well, they'll make plywood cabinets, but they look like they appear to be made out of solid hardwood. To somebody who walks through the house, if you don't look close and inspect the cabinets, it looks like they're solid hardwood cabinets. And in Isaiah 58, that is the exact issue that Isaiah is addressing. The people of Israel are going through the motions and they have their sin covered with a veneer of worship. So we're going to look at two different issues that are addressed in Isaiah 58. The first one is there's something wrong with the worship that the Israelites are presenting to God. There's something wrong with it. They're doing all the right things, but there's something wrong with it. Their worship is not acceptable to God. And the other thing that we're going to look at is what needs to change. Why is what they're doing wrong, and how do they need to change it in order to make it acceptable? And the main point of the first 12 verses of Isaiah 58 can be stated two ways, both, both in a positive light and in a negative light. The first way, the negative light, is that ritual, religious ritual, or the things that we do, our habits, if they do not produce a God-exalting religious fervor, then it's worthless. Ritual that does not produce God-exalting religious fervor is completely worthless. And to state that in a positive light, God promises that we will break forth like the dawn if our worship produces a God-exalting religious fervor. If what we do during the week doesn't match what we feel on Sunday when we're worshiping, then that worship isn't genuine. That worship isn't true. You're just going through the motions. So let's, let's look at what's wrong with their worship. First, the first verse of Isaiah 58 really clears up the issue if there is a problem. And God makes it pretty clear. He tells Isaiah, Cry loudly and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgressions and to the house of Jacob their sins. The word for cry loudly means a rumble from your throat. Cry loudly. Don't hold back. Tell them what they're doing wrong. Holler at them. Go get in their face. They're doing something wrong and they don't even know it. They need to know what they're doing wrong. This seems like it's kind of important to God. 
It seems like this, this fake worship is a little bit of an issue. Next, we see a description of what their worship looks like. And this is scary. This is what, this, is, this scares me a little bit. Yet they seek me, starting in verse 2, yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their, of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Their description the description that's used for their worship here sounds a lot like what just went on here. We were delighting to know God's ways. I would like to say that's true of my life. We seek the Lord day by day. I hope that's true. I would pray that that's true. They do not forsake the ordinance of their God. They delight in the nearness of God. They fast. They're humbled before the Lord. But God tells Isaiah to go yell at them for their fake worship. That causes me to tremble. If that's what fake worship looks like, then what am I, what am I doing? If that's, what, if that's what going through the motions looks like, I guess I'm pretty good at it. So what's, what's wrong with what they're doing? These things don't seem in and of themselves bad things. What's wrong with what they're doing? God answers that question halfway through verse 3. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire. And drive hard all your workers. Behold your fast, behold you fast for contention and strife, and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this that I choose? A day for man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and spreading out sackcloth and ash as a bed? Will you call this a fast? Even an acceptable day to the Lord? So we have two different lists. We have a list of things that they're doing. We have a list of things that they're going through in their worship. And then we have a list of things that they're doing during the week. What are they doing wrong? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your own desires. They're self-centered. They're worshiping the Lord, but they're worried about themselves. You drive hard all your workers. What would that look like in today's context? They go to church on Sunday, they worship God, and they feel close to God on Sunday, and then they go to work on Monday, and everything that they do with their coworkers or maybe the people that work for them is focused on themselves. They use the people around them for their own gain. You drive hard, all your workers. You fast for contention and for strife. They worship God and then stir up contention among their brothers. You strike with a wicked fist. 
And then in verse 5, God says, is, is that what you think I want? Is that the fast that I have commanded you to give me? Is that the kind of worship that I desire? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed just because you have a posture of worship like a bent reed in a swamp? You think that's what I'm looking for? And for spreading sackcloth and ash as a bed, will you call this a fast? There's clearly an incorrect motivation behind their worship. They're doing all the right things. They're going through the motions and they're looking like they got everything together. On the outside, their worship looks acceptable. But on the inside, in their heart, there's no life. This reminds me of Philippians 2 when, when Paul says to consider others more important than yourself and look to the needs of others instead of to your own needs. So what, what do they need to do different? Because the time of worship that they've been experiencing, the fasts that they've been carrying out may be sweet, they may feel Good. They may be experiencing something that feels like they're close to God. They have, they have fooled themselves into thinking that their worship is correct. But when their worship leaves their sin untouched, when their worship is masking their sin to worthless worship because religious rituals that do not produce a God-exalting religious fervor are worthless. So what does God want? What kind of worship does God desire? And the, the next few verses are, are if-then statements. If this, if you do this, then God will. If you do this, then God will. And we have to make sure that we don't look at this in a legalistic light, that the only reason we're doing these things is to receive what God promises. Starting in, verse, starting in verse 6. Is not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of the wicked, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Continuing on in the second half of verse 9. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. That's a description of what God is after. That's the kind of worship that God wants. If our worship looks like what the Israelites were doing, if our worship matches the description of all the things the Israelites were carrying out, and yet we're not, we're not caring about other people, we're not freeing the bonds of the oppressed, we're not lifting the burden of bondage, we're not feeding the hungry, we're not housing the homeless and we're not clothing the naked and caring about other people. Now that can look 
a lot of different ways. There's not a bunch of naked people running around Bozeman that need clothes, but there are people with needs. And if our worship on Sunday masks an attitude of self-centeredness, then it's, it's no good. It's worthless. Now these if-then statements, we have to be careful. We have to be careful with that because, again, we don't want an attitude of legalism. We don't want to be doing these things simply because God promises rewards. And it's not a job description. This isn't like, if you do this, this is your job to earn God's promises. It doesn't work that way. Because on our own strength, we are incapable of carrying out that kind of worship. We cannot carry out that kind of worship, that kind of religious fervor, apart from putting our trust in Christ. Our strength to worship the Lord the way that he desires cannot and will not come from within us. It comes from God, and it comes from a trust in Christ and a relationship with Christ. Our worship needs to be an outflow of our love for Christ. And out of that overflow of a love for Christ, we're naturally going to be caring about other people. God didn't make the commands that he gave us complicated, and I'm thankful for that because I'm kind of a simple person. He told us to love him and love other people. Those are the two commands he gave us. Love God and love people. And at the school that I was at in Wisconsin, that got drilled into us every day by who, Rachel? Rich. Love God, love people. Next comes the promises. If we do these things, then God will. The first one is darkness becomes light. Darkness becomes light in verse 8. Then your light will break out like the dawn. And again in verse 10, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. And when I catch myself in these times of just going through the motions and there's no, there's no life in what I'm doing and there's no passion in what I'm doing and my relationship with Christ is weak and all of a sudden I realize where I'm at, whether by somebody calling me out or Another, another way of, of me realizing I need to do something different, then you kind of get this gloom, this darkness. You get depressed. What does God say? If you worship me in the way that I want, then your light will rise like the noonday. Your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. Physical strengthening. Another promise, physical strengthening. Verse 8 again, halfway through. And your recovery will be speedily spring forth. And then again in verse 11. And he will give strength to your bones. Now when we're doing ministry in our own strength, getting burnt out is something that's going to happen. You're not going to be able to carry out the ministry that you're in if you're trying to do it on your own strength. Not 
in an attitude of worship to God first and then loving people out of that love for Christ. So this makes sense. If we're doing ministry out of a love for who God is and who Christ is and what he's done for us, naturally, he's going to sustain us. He's going to be our strength. Another promise is that God will be all around us. Verse 8, And your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. When we're worshiping God the way that he desires us to worship him, and it's not fake, he will be working in our lives, through our lives. He will be before us. He'll be behind us. He'll be over us. We don't have anything to worry about. It's not us sustaining us anyways. God will be all around us. God will be with us. God will continually guide us. That promise is given in verse 11. And the Lord will continually guide you. The Lord will continually guide you. You don't need to know where you're going to be 10 years down the road. You just need to know that you're living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Doing what the Lord has called you to do right now. God will satisfy our souls. Again, verse 11. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Again in verse 11, God will make us a watered garden. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Again, you're doing ministry in the strength of Christ. You're not going to burn out. You're not going to run out. God's going to sustain you. People will come in. And if you're trying to do ministry in your own strength, if you're trying to do, do ministry out of a, go, just going through the motions, a fake, a fake worship, people are going to come and they're going to take. They're going to take, they're going to take, they're going to take, and you're going to give, and you're going to give, and you're going to give, and then you're going to get burnt out. You're not going to have anything else to give. But, if we are doing ministry out of a genuine worship, out of a genuine love for who God is, it's not going to be us giving ourselves, it's going to be us giving them Christ. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And then verse 12. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. That's, that's my prayer for my life. That's my prayer for this school. That's my prayer for all of you. That's my prayer for the church in general. That we wouldn't be just going through the motions. That we wouldn't be doing and saying all the right things, but not have any passion, not have any heart, not have any life behind it. Not that, that, that there won't be, there won't be time. It's not saying that there won't be times when, when things get, things get hard, when things get 
things start to not go the way that you had planned. Not, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when our habits, when our religious rituals, when what we do and what we say produce a God-exalting religious fervor, God is going to make us break forth like the dawn. He is going to sustain us. And that can only be done, again, that can only be done through putting our faith and putting our trust in who Christ is and what he's done for us. We have no ability of doing that on our own. If what we experience in chapel, in worship, in, at church on Sunday, in classes, if what we experience in our study of God's word doesn't match the rest of our life, if what we experience in church on Sunday and what we experience here in chapel in these worship, times of worship, if that masks a sin in our life, if all that is is a, a veneer that cloaks sin issues in our life, sin issues of self-centeredness, then that worship that we're offering God is worthless to us and disgusting to God. Jesus does not give a rip about how you feel. He does not give a rip about what you experience if what you feel and what you experience is masking a sin issue of pride and a sin issue of self-centeredness. God promises that we will break forth like the dawn. We will be sustained if our religious practices, if what we experience in chapel, in times of worship, in church on Sunday, if that produces a God-exalting religious fervor, then God will, break, God will cause us to break forth like the dawn. He will sustain us. But if not, the worship that we offer is worthless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the times when we need to be rebuked by the truth of your word. Father, I pray that we would be humble and that we would be receptive to what your word is teaching us. Father, I pray that our lives would match the commands in your word, that what you command us to do would be evident in our lives, that what we experience in times of worship, what we experience in church on Sunday would not just be something that we do, would not just be a time of just going through the motions and, and going to church simply because it's what you do. But Father, I pray that what we experience in times of worship would validate the other areas of our life. That our worship would be authentic and that would be proven by the way that we interact with people. Give us a a love for lost souls, Father, and use us to bring people to yourself. And it's your name we pray.